is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Wildlife Command Center podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Starr. Thank you for listening. Today, I've got on one of my good buddies, Nick Yashko. He is a falconer down in Alabama, and he freaking works for quail forever. So we talk about that. As you can see by the title, we talk about snipe hunting with passage falcons. You know, I kind of pick his brain a little bit about what I could do in that regard with like a Merlin, his success with Merlins, with passage peregrines. He's flown a couple of them now and like what he does within his organization of Quail Forever. If you guys haven't already, please subscribe to the pod. And if you can leave us an awesome five-star review, it really does help out. That would be sweet. This is my last recording until I get back from Utah. Going on an elk hunt, spike elk hunt. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. Recorded this pod a few days ago, and we're going to get it out here in a few days or so. Not really sure exactly when. (laughs) Awesome. All righty, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Let me jump right in with my buddy, Nick Yashko. So Nick and I were just talking about how so we're doing like this over Zoom right now, and his beard was catching on the microphone and giving me feedback. And so I was just actually about to say that right before I walk into the elk woods, I'm literally going to trim probably the same length as what I usually do, like just to look good, but the right side of my face, basically because when I draw my bow back, if it's any longer, if my beard is any longer than this, it gets like caught in my release as I'm releasing my arrow and it hurts. Not that that matters in the grand scheme. Like if the elk's dead, who cares if for a second I get a hair pulled out? You know what I mean? Yeah. I usually shave my face once a year and that's coming up too in the wintertime. So what? Once a year? Completely gone. Yeah. I trim it up every so often, but completely gone once a year. Holy smokes. Okay. So that, that was a little impromptu, but what's going on everybody? So this is my buddy, Nick Yashko, right? That's how you pronounce your name? Yep. That's right. Not Yashko or anything. Where the hell did that originate? Is there a, my grandparents were Yashkoians or or do you have any Uh, information on that? Originally it was Jashko, which is J-A-S-K-O. It's Russian. And that got switched over to Y-A-S-H-K-O, which is Yashko. Don't know how long ago that happened, but that's what did. And it's always been fun to have to spell it out for people over the phone or always been last in line on the attendance sheet for (laughs) school. So unless they go backwards, which sometimes that happens, but Barely. it's pretty easy to find my name if it's on a list somewhere. But the nice thing is besides the K, it's pretty straightforward. It Yashko, is. Yeah. Right. It's not too hard to spell. Well, anyway, so you're an Alabama falconer, friend of mine. What do you do at Quail Forever? I'm a farm bill biologist, pretty much a private lands biologist. So we uh, help out landowners across, I cover 21 counties, east, south, central part of the state. We've got some that covers the West and then a couple more positions opening up, cover the North and some other counties, but basically help landowners manage the property for wildlife. And where I'm at, it's mainly turkey, deer, and quail. And each property is kind of different just depending on what their their goals are and what it looks like. And then we uh, assist the USDA. They have farm bill programs, which, you know, if people bird hunt a lot, people already know what the farm bill programs are because a lot of folks are already in it or, or hunt some of the properties that are enrolled in it, especially CRP, which is Conservation Reserve Program. So we help. I'm based out of a USDA office and 
drive all over and help out landowners manage their properties and write plans and they apply for these programs and hopefully get funded and it's a cost share opportunity. So if they get funded, a certain percent of it gets reimbursed once the management's been done and checked out as well. So mm. trying to put more habitat on the ground, especially for quail where we're at. And yeah, it's I was usually, about to say, as far as quail forever, is there yeah. any quail in, in Alabama? So just like most of the Southeast and honestly, any of the Northern Bob White range, you know, Alabama used to be one of the, Hot spots for quail and working with some of these landowners, you hear a lot of, you know, back in my day stories. Good old just, days. Yeah, we could walk fence row without a dog and shoot a limb and no problem. Those days are unfortunately gone, but there's what well, I am seeing, you know, get them down on birds. And once we start piecing habitats back together, especially neighbor to neighbor, and, oh, and providing more good quality habitat, uh, that's kind of the goal. Because most of my landowners are, you know, they own quote unquote, smaller acreage. I'd love just to own some acreage, but, you know, a couple hundred acres here and there. Uh, <laughs> we do have Small. a few that, you know, thousands of acres, but trying to piece those together because that's, you know, the reason for the whole quail decline is the habitat. It's just it's all monoculture. Exactly. Habitat oh, fragmentation. Man. It's all, all monoculture. So we do have wild birds and we've got wild birds on public land too. You just got to work harder than you used to have to to find them. But that makes, you know, makes it more rewarding when you do get into a covey of them. Man, that stings. I can kind of see how that is. So like out West here where there's plenty of birds. So let's say, so Northern Nevada covered up in quail, absolutely covered in quail. Right. Just kidding guys. Don't come here. There's no birds, (laughs) but where there used to be birds. So let's say I spend a lot of time in California now and they have a whole lot of that now too. the good old day talk of pheasant and California quail here. But since they changed their farming practices, man, we need some of those. We need some of you guys out here, man. They made everything so much cleaner. And so there's no hedgerows. And so it used to be basically blackberry hedgerows on every, every ditch, every corner, every fence, everything was that. And, you know, they had their ag between all of that, of course, for decades and decades. But since they removed the hedgerows, now there's literally nowhere for anything to go and everything's dead as yep, far as the native, uh, the native introduced pheasants, but the native California quail. Yeah, it's the same. Well, you don't have pheasants down here, but it's the same, same story here and same story with honestly most game species. It's a habitat issue, not a predator issue or anything like that. And that's what we're running into here. That's what we used to call fence row to fence row farming. And that whole clean look, it looks good to the human eye, but it doesn't, that's not any benefit to quail or any wildlife. You know, they need that diversity Mm -hmm. of habitat, diversity of species. And that's what we're, we're working on down here. And we do have, I don't know about Northern Nevada, but we've got pheasants forever and quail forever employees. And I can't remember how many States it's like 40 something States. So I don't know if there's any folks in Nevada or not, but we do have some people out West. There's folks that are doing sage grouse uh, work out West that work for pheasants forever. Uh, it's kind of all over the place, but Man, the story's kind of the same. Down those freaking barbed wire fences, dude. Jeez. Yeah. Barbed wire fences and cedar trees and all that. So yeah, yeah those that, dang, uh, those damn junipers, man. Yeah. That's what we're, we're dealing with here. And if it was like the good old days, I'd be flying a bird on quail over a pointing dog like some folks can do out West, but we just don't have enough wild birds to make an imprint or even a non-imprint 
no. on quail here. So we so, find them, we appreciate them, but we are not finding them every day. No. Nah, and I mean, like, even like, from your perspective, knowing what you know, do you even want to hunt those local birds? Do you right. feel the inclination <laughs> to put any pressure to harvest any of those at all? Like, right. I yeah, wouldn't on, even want to kill any. On public land, I do. I'll hunt public land, the private land. Most, you know, most of our landowners at this point just want to hear wild quail on their property. Very few are interested in hunting oh, them. Man. Yeah, no and if kidding. they are, it's, I want to take one or two a year just to have Say the fact that it. we've got, right, that we've got wild cubbies on our property and we're seeing an increase in birds. But public land is fair game to me. And we uh, also woodcock hunt down here quite a bit. And oh. So we'll be running into woodcock and quail at the same time. So how are the woodcock know. doing? Woodcock are good. It's kind of a underutilized bird in the Southeast in general, but especially in Alabama. I think last time I read, I read some article, there's only about 300 folks in the whole state that actively target woodcock. What? That's yeah. it? Compare that to New England or Minnesota or something. It's completely different. So we've got good numbers. We get a lot of birds that winter down here. Nothing like East Texas or Louisiana, but we've got lots of birds during the winter. Hmm. Um, that's something I've just gone into the last couple of years, though. So I'm still figuring that out. And as woodcock go, it's, you know, you find the habitat they should be in. You don't find them one day and you might find them the next or you find them in spots you wouldn't expect. So they're pretty tricky compared to getting on quail from what I've experienced so far. Yeah, I found them in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, on a one-acre, maybe four-year-old replant, like reprod. You know, like the trees are like four years old growing up. And I found multiple woodcock just in this tiny little one-acre section. Yep, and that young forest, that's what they're usually in. But I've also pushed them out of, you know, mature loblolly pine stands as well. So usually that young forest is what they're looking for. And same with rough grouse too. Not that we have rough dense. grouse in the state, but yeah, high stem count is what they're looking for. So Ooh. it's fun to hunt, especially down here. I kind of laugh a little bit when the folks up in New England and North talk about walking through thick stuff to get in a woodcock. And it's, I always invite them to come down to the Southeast because you gotta have a good pair of briar traps and a dog oh, yeah. that can get into that cover because they are in some thick stuff and you bleed a lot of time. <laughs> so of course, uh, I, came, work. I started my falconry apprenticeship in Louisiana and like in addition to, you know, gloves, just the swivel bells, one of your absolute very first items was a pair of chaps. Like Absolutely. you could not hunt without a pair of chaps. It's, it was like legitimate as important <laughs> as like a giant hood for your red tail, your briar chaps, you know what yeah. I mean? Especially if you're a rabbit hawking, which I don't, haven't done much of and don't do any now in Alabama, mainly because of that, because you don't get to see anything either. So yeah, if you're rabbit hunting, you definitely need traps. Squirrel, not so much here in this part of the state, at least, or the whole state, really. When I was hawking in Auburn, I didn't use chaps often, but when we did, it was when we're going for rabbits. So it can get thick. But And I, that's probably why not, not many folks woodcock around here is because it can be a lot of work for unquote, a little reward or something, but I enjoy doing it anyway. And I, I think they're a neat bird. So. Yeah. As far as like gun hunters, I don't really know that many of those guys who would totally rock a pair of chaps. Like it's mostly falconers from, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're a lot more inclined to get in there and try and tear it all up. Right. Yeah. Push something sure. out for the birds. Yep. Working for the birds too. So got to get it while you can. 
So you, are you flying a second year Peregrine? Yeah, he was a first year Peregrine last year. So yes. it'll be a second year this upcoming season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Passage and, Peregrine uh, for everybody. Tundra Peregrine that was trapped here. Tundra, uh, Tearsel. And uh, as they do, they don't molt that great their first year. So we're fingers crossed. He drops quite a few more feathers before we start bringing his weight down and start flying on him again at the end of October and prep for season. So where is he at so far? <laughs> oh man, it's bad, dude. It's uh, oh, I get it. a couple secondaries, Salula feathers and all down and a couple body feathers and that's it. But oh, from the, that is bad. Yeah. From Dang, talking I thought to my the, Merlin was bad, dude. Like no. not a single tail feather. He started in late July. No, Tundra Peregrine's men are, are brutal. He dropped he dropped set a day for three days in a row in early June and hasn't dropped a feather since then. And oh, talking to the other guys wow. that fly tundras, that's they're all individuals. Some will, will be a hundred percent molted out by the start of next season. Some will be like where he's at and then everything in between. And they're just they're so individualistic. And they don't dude. even mold that well in the wild. A lot of this Guys that trap on South Padre doing the Peregrine survey, they'll find a lot of second year birds with still a lot of brown on them. So they're, <laughs> that's, I love everything about Tundra Peregrines except for their molt. So we'll see what he does. I'm not flying him for a few more months. So we'll see. And, and I heard they get better. You know, this is the first one I've, I've kept. I've flown two and I let the female go. And then this is the first one I've kept. And I hear every year they're supposed to get a little bit better with the molt and then they, kind of catch up after you've had them a few years, but they've got to check all the marks for falconry before you get to that point. And did this bird check so, those marks? Well, he did up until the molt. He's been, I'm actually starting to drop his weight some now because he's gotten so, he was so fat and unmanageable for past few months. Yeah. He took a long time to get going and get with the program and I would flush stuff underneath him and it was he was always out of position for a long time. And I just kept doing it and hoping he was going to learn that he needs to be directly over me Ah. or at least not super wide when I flush stuff. And he finally picked it up at the end of the season, caught a a few snipe at the end of the season, and then it was time to be done. And he would weather really well. He'd weather for hours without a bait, which some passage falcons can be kind of a pain with weathering, but he weathered really well. Yeah, And did really great up until I started... Molting him up, molting him out, and then he's gotten a little, a little bit stubborn. But we'll see how this next season goes. I'm, we'll be trapping this year, regardless. So it might be trapping his replacement. But I'm sure once he starts, you know, we start flying again and conditioning. I think he's going to get back into the program and oh, weather yeah. nice and take baths and chill out. Dude, there's nothing like. I mean, in most birds, you can say the same for this too. Second year birds, but like, bro, second year falcons, man, dude. After like one or three days of conditioning, at least from my experience, they go right back up and they're like, if they ended well, they go right back up and they're like, all right, let's go, baby. Flush me something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I'll, uh, I'll start getting him out probably end of October, put him on a drone for a week or two mm-hmm. and start hawking him again and go from there. He finally figured it out. And I, I run an English Cocker Spaniel too. And at the end of season, it was kind of fun. I could let him up, let her out, and honestly sit back and watch because he rather weighed on over the dog than over me. Uh, yep. Because she was putting, obviously, more birds up than it's I was. beautiful, isn't so, it? Yeah, and that's why I kept him. You know, glad with that decision until he started becoming a pain in the butt. But 
we're close enough now that I'm not going to give up. I'll just push through it. And I think he'll pick up where we left off. Yeah, I know how that is. It's funny. I'm talking with um, Megan Hill. She has a goshawk right now and it's in the mold. And it's just this, this beautiful, dainty princess, right? It's so funny that how short wings and long wings are complete opposite. Like, I'm dropping uh, my female Jir Barbary down and, you know, she's coming along now that she's getting less fat, you know, she's less <laughs> confrontational. <laughs> right. She's uh, more obliging to me. You know, I can walk up, pick her up, touch her feet and all this stuff now that she's dropping her weight. Whereas, you know, a few weeks ago she was like screaming, get away from me. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. Just give me my food. And my friend Megan is like, not looking forward to the drop, the weight yeah. drop, because that's so, when Gossocks turn into demons. Yep, it's total opposite. I can't wait for this bird to <laughs> come down and weight and Gossocks right? when they're fat and happy. They, they're fat and they hang out, and mm-hmm. falcons just get cranky and don't want to be dealt with at all. Exactly. So I've learned some lessons. I know the next year I probably won't let the bird get so fat as I did this year. And he wasn't even his 100 grams over flying weight, but he was got to the point where he was just not eating all his food. And if you even looked at him wrong, he was mad. So, oh, snap. Yeah. <laughs> what was his flying weight? Uh, he was a small bird. He was trapped. My buddy actually trapped him down on the coast. He was thin. 435, I think, was his trap. What? Weight. Oh, but he was yeah. thin? Oh, yeah. He was like not doing great? No, he was not. And uh, that could be part wow. of the reason he. Uh, he came he, along. <laughs> he came along. Well, it could be part of the reason it took him so long to get with the program as well, as he obviously was not doing well out in the wild by himself. So he was trapped at 435. That's um, crazy, I mean, healthy, dude. feather perfect, feet perfect, healthy, besides being thin. Besides uh, and he, starving to death. You're right. And he, uh, he flew 445 to 460 was his range. So he, that's I mean, that's the thing. first bird I've had fly over, over trap weight. You know, usually most birds you have not drop, we brought him up. Yeah. Um, and he's on the smaller true. end, for sure, on the smaller end. I think most tundra tiercels probably fly around 490 or 500. So he's a little bit on the smaller end. But for what we fly, that's the smaller, the better. So, And so with him, it. are you doing almost strictly, you know, you said you didn't have too much success because it took him a while to come on. But so like this coming season, are you going to try for just snipe? No, I'll fly him on snipe and dove, and then we get oh, some. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. We you, get, you molted a bird out, so you're going to be able to hit that early dove season. Yeah, we'll hit. Well, nice. well I won't start flying him until October, but we'll have, we have oh. dove all year. And we have a ton of dove down here. Oh, um, nice. Just finding the right slips. And, uh, and then we get, you know, it's Alabama, so by far no long winter state. But I'll be honest, I think if people are, if they put in maybe a little bit more effort or have a little bit more of an open mind, the southeast is no falcon country, but you can get it done. And I have friends flying. I'm not flying a female on ducks here for a reason, but we've got nah. a lot of snipe, a lot of duff. And then we do have some cattle ponds that everyone's wild. We'll hold mergansers and teal. Uh, mm. Buffalo, or, uh, or mainly mergansers and teal in some spots. So I pretty much fly ducks when I can find them, but I rarely ever go look for them. And it's mainly snipe, which last year... They were kind of sparse in the beginning of the season, but towards the end of the season, I was finding multiple slips every single day. Dude, and we've got that's what I'm know, saying. Lots of dove bro. here. The, the dove is the key is getting a good quality slip, but we didn't catch any last year. He tried real hard, but snipe just that wing beat and snipe just sucked him in. He chases them a lot harder than dove. Oh, really? So, 
try to focus a little bit more on Dove this year. Yeah, I think Dove are harder a little bit. I mean, Sniper really hard and really shifty and, you know, can embarrass a bird pretty easily, but Dove just have a little bit of an extra gear from what I've seen. So is that, is that, and so with, yeah, with, with your experience, that's where you think they burned him if he, if he wasn't coming in too fast. I I think that's what my, one of my buddies who's, he says, so with doves, you have to fly through the dove. Like you can't fly up behind it, you know, from the bird's perspective and grab it because they're so, they're slippery. They're so slippery because their feathers just fall off of them. Just fall out. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. For exactly to protect them from predation, and so you think that for a peregrine specifically, you know, if you don't have a bunch of slips for him to practice on, they're too fast at that. Like, you know, if they burn off their speed, is that what the deal is? They're too fast on that back end. Yeah, pretty much. And what what he and like I said, he he didn't figure out the waiting on. He was always so wide, and by the time usually if they're wide, you can wait them out and they'll come over. He'd get mm-hmm. wide, and if he if I had to wait him out, he'd just drift off. Oh, and uh, that's so that's okay. why I just started, that's why I just started, you know, talking to, and I'm by no means this is my, you know, first tearsal passage bird. There's guys that have been doing it for a lot longer, but talking to them, it's with a, we came up with the idea of letting the birds teach the Falcon that, you know, you need to be in the right position to even have a shot at them. That's what he finally figured out by the end, by the end of the season, we were flying snipe 95% of the time instead of dove just because, he just had a liking to snipe more than dove and chase them a lot harder. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see this year. It's just, and for my setups too, we get a lot cleaner snipe slips than dove because a lot of the dove down here can be by thick cover. So, but I saw a lot more yes. corn this year driving yeah, around. Yeah I, saw, yeah. I saw a lot more corn fields planted this year. So than last year, which would be great for dove if they're out in the middle of cornfield, I'll be able to fly that a lot cleaner. So, We'll see. How interesting. You know, I, I saw a bunch more snipe too. And so that's what's kind of got me thinking. You know, that that's what originally had me reach out because you'd be posting these snipe and I'm like, man, that sounds interesting. And then I would see more and more out where I'm just hawking, you know, like little sparrows and stuff like that. And I don't think I ever actually flushed one underneath my jack, but he's also... He's small for a jack. He's not a big jack. Were you ever to weigh any that were relatively undamaged? Like, do you know what they weigh? Uh, I never weighed any, but Peregrine's let him eat the head off of it before I went and picked him up. But they're mm-hmm. definitely probably similar weight to Jack. I flew to Jack when I lived in Auburn and had it. He would weight on 150, 200 feet. He's a ham, hand-me-down bird. But we flushed a couple snipe under him and he always tried, but, but never got close. But yeah, they're probably similar size if not the same if i had a guess okay so but they can they can do it i just a larger bird that naturally weights on well is the ticket and a tarsal pairing kind of fits that perfectly i mean they make their living hunting shorebirds and that's why they're migrating down here following shorebirds and stuff when we trap them on the beach so nice. i mean merlins are doing that too but yeah um, they can do it for sure but about the same size yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna rock a female. I, I think you know that's still my plan. I'm gonna trap a female because I, I kind of want to try that. You know, we've got a whole, we got a whole mess of dove around here, and I don't really know anything about hunting dove quite yet. I really do not. I, I need to learn how to do that. But once, so we have like these alfalfa fields out here, right? And once the rains come, they stop harvesting them with farm equipment. 
And so they switch over instead of like bailing it for hay, then they start selling it to goat herders, goat raisers. Yeah. So what they do, because the water is not really a plenty, but you know, once the, basically the, the rainy season comes out here and once the goats, I mean, I don't know how this alfalfa manages, but they just like completely destroy this stuff and it stays alive. It's bananas and it gets rained on after that. It's this mucky, boggy mess of crap. And what do snipe love more than that? Not much, yeah, dude. They love exactly. this muddy, disgusting, goat poop ridden. And like every time I would, you know, I'd see a flock of the sparrows that I was hunting be in that. I would always flush snipe. Unfortunately, every single time out of position, I never actually flush one under him, which was a bit of a bummer. So I never got that chance. But having seen all those, yeah, I kind of want to try a female. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, our fields aren't that stinky or, or goat ridden. But yeah, you find, <laughs> you find soil that's been wet for a while, especially around pond edges and stuff, which is mainly what I hunt here. You, you'll find snipe because they're able to probe the soil for invertebrates and everything they eat. So it's definitely a fun quarry and one that's not not just like Woodcock not hunted a, a ton. So it's doable. So what what about them do you think turned your peregrine on more than doves? I don't know if it's the wing beat or what, but I mean he'll chase a snipe over a dove any day. I just think it's because hmm. he got burned early on from dove and that's me being my first year trying to fly doves or anything and not knowing exactly what it gets clean slips looks like. So it's probably on my lack of experience more than him. But if there were, if there was, if you had the choice of a sniper or a dove to chase, he'd be, he'd be chasing the snipe every time. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure. We'll see this year. Our, the snipe probably won't start coming in until a little bit later on in the season. If it goes anything like last year. So yeah, we'll have dove slips. We'll start them on that. See if we can't now that he's caught a few snipe and learn the program a little bit better. See if he can't figure that out. If be, he's, uh, if he's right above fun. you, you know what I mean? Like if he's in the proper position and he flushes dove and, and you flush a dove for him, he should. If I'm connecting those dots correctly, if early on he was missing, but he was also out of position, then if right. he's right, you know, if he's in the proper spot, he might be able to nail some. Yeah. And it's all about cover too, because dove will get really dumpy on falcons above him. So really? Dove and, Morning yeah. dove? Oh yeah. Dove and snipe. Well, oh, wow. dump like crazy if it's not the right setup. And I've gun hunted both of them and it's obviously completely different. And that's, yeah, that's why the dog was so important because I didn't run her under him at first because I ideally it was like, well, it'd be nice for him to catch a couple before I introduced another thing into the mix. I yep. figured out later on that that was not the case because he, she ended up helping way more. But, you know, I'd fly, find some snipe, buy some snipe, put them up flush them there'd be like 10 that i could see through binoculars and i'd only get a few up and then i'd be running around like crazy trying to find them and can't find them because they pin so hard when there's a falcon above them yes and uh, so using the using the cocker to go find them just i mean i was getting way more flushes and oh they yeah. figured it out but yeah they'll dump into in the cover as well if it's if it's not a good slip so I mean, they've evolved with these predators forever compared to gun hunting and gun hunting they'll just get up and keep going and uh, if it's not the right setup, they'll dump. But if it is, they'll get up and keep going. Sometimes they'll they'll ring a little bit, but not most of the time. They just get up and go. And you'll think your bird's about to come down and smack one, and they'll just juke them to left or right. So they're pretty fun to fly. 
Oh man. So, okay. If they do get the juke, but is there even an option after that? Like uh, on that specific for, one? No, not for that specific one. Sometimes and he'll oh, do this. he did this last year, but hopefully he'll get out of it. He'll he tail chase a little bit, but he'd always pull off. Not like a Merlin on dove or anything. He'll pull off a lot quicker. But on that specific one, no. But what you do when you're snipe hawking is when you get one up, you stop moving, stand still, so you don't bust anymore. If yep. he misses that one, uh, let them remount. And I mean, you can fly them 45 minutes with six remounts and stoops if they aren't in good enough shape and figure it out. So yeah, we would have to do the same thing, man. Yeah. After one flush, it's so nice to be able to, I know you, you, I'm sure you taught your dog this too, is teach your dog freaking like what, I don't know what your command was, but man, after that bird flushes, you freeze, do not move, you know, (laughs) sit your ass down or whatever it was for you. And then you just watch the flight dog, Stops moving, you know, misses yes or no, mostly yes, of course. Um, <laughs> Ideally, and, yeah, yeah, and then wait till that bird keeps go, you know, starts mounting back up. Man, that's exactly how I flew. I think I might be able to figure this out. Yeah, it's sim- it's similar to that. I mean, it's you know, it's a classic waiting on flight, and uh, and every other snipe, you'll get some, you know, two or three get up at a time just because they're so close to each other. But once you get at least one up, just stop moving, and if they miss it wait for them to chase it and they miss the if they don't catch it and let them come back over and that was the other thing too that i was trying to teach him with positioning that's just great position work is once they figure out that you're the you're the fun one producing stuff for them they ideally should start just waiting on better and better and higher and that's that's what i i saw it with him a little bit last year but i saw it with my female even more when we were hawking sage grouse that she get get burned by grouse and then just come back higher and higher every single time that's the so, way it goes. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, all you're doing is just putting them on wild birds and letting them figure it out and trying to set them up for success. So, dang, yeah. dude. Okay. So I'm new to the Zoom thing. And it's like, because I didn't pay for it, it's telling me that I'm running out of time. <laughs> so <laughs> we can wrap this puppy up. You know what I mean? What, what, we, what we can do is, because we didn't, we had this was kind of just like a shallow conversation for how I like to podcast. We should come back in a few months after we've got our birds in the air. And then maybe I'll figure out a better version <laughs> or a better way to record. You know what I mean? We kind of did this off the cuff. I'm literally like leaving to go hunt elk in two days. So I wanted to, right. s- to squeeze this puppy in because we've been talking about it for a while. Where can people find you? Really, Facebook is about it. I used yeah. to have an Insta- used to have an Instagram. I don't do that much anymore. It uh got hacked, and honestly, I didn't feel like dealing no. with it or, or starting it over. So I just I let that go a few years ago. Oh, but I'm man. I'm on Facebook like a like an old person. But that's ah. that's about it. Yeah, well, sweet so. dude. Dang, I wish you I wish you were on Instagram. That, I mean, that's that's where I do most of my posting and stuff like that. But that's a bummer that yep. it got hacked. Yeah, I I was on it for a while, and it got hacked about two years ago and it, it was just too much of a pain to, to undo all that. And I didn't feel like starting a new one. So that's about it. But yeah, I'm down to, uh, to talk again once we get birds going and season starts, which is right around the corner. Luckily it Summer is. is, it's still crazy hot down here though. So I can't wait for it to get into fall and winter time. Yeah, me too. It's literally a hundred degrees out right now. And I'm going to go yep. shoot some pigeons and run. Yeah, there you go. It's probably 90 here and 85% humidity or something. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. All righty, folks. 
Thank you guys for listening. Nick, thanks for jumping on with me. We are yes, running sir. up to the wire as far as how long this thing is going to record for us. So thank you, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this podcast. This is Michael Baran, a.k.a. Bare Hands Baran. Make sure you go now to Discovery Plus. Download our reality TV show, Bare Hands Rescue, where we are out there every day rescuing people from wild animals. It is entertaining, it is engaging, and it is informative. Download it today and listen for our next podcast.